Hello, and welcome to episode 115 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. Obviously, I'm not Craig Andera. I am, in fact, Russ Olson. Craig has moved on from Cognitech to pursue new challenges, and certainly everyone at Cognitech, and especially the CogniCast crew, wish him all the best. The Cognicast is going to continue on in the 2017 with new hosts, including Karen Meyer, Tim Baldridge, and Stuart Sierra. But this week we are bringing you an episode that Craig was kind enough to pre-record for us. And before we get started, we do have just a couple of announcements. The Baltimore Closure User Group is meeting, well, tonight as we release this podcast. That's Tuesday, December 20th, 2016. You can get the details at www.meetup.com slash Baltimore-closure, but you better be quick. Also, the Toronto User Group is meeting on January 17th, 2017, so you get a little more time there. That's at www.meetup.com slash Closure-Toronto. And that's about it. So without further ado, here is episode 115 of the Cognicast. Okay, then. Cool. Let's kick it off. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cognicast. Today is Friday, November 11th in 2016. Um, And I'm I'm very pleased today to welcome to the show Mike Pearson. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, Thanks very much, Craig. Good to be here. Well, we, so we ran into you at, I wasn't there, but uh, uh, several other Cognitechs ran into you at um, Euroclosure, where you gave a very interesting presentation. And uh, they came back and they said, oh, we should, we should definitely have Mike on the show. Um, and I said, oh, that sounds great. And I had a chance to look at your presentation. And, and I was like, well, yeah, we definitely want to talk to, to this guy. But um, before we get into all of that um, and the other topics for today, um, I will start you off with the question that we always start our guests off, uh, which is a question about art. So this is the, the thing where we ask our guests to relate some experience of art, whatever that means to them, anything at all. Uh, so I, I know that we talked about this beforehand, and you said you had something in mind. So what would you like to share with us? Yeah, well, when you said that you wanted to start with a question on art, I thought, oh, that's good. That's my area, because um, yeah, I like graphics. I'm a visual man, really. So um, visual arts is where I'm at. And... Um, I think the, th- the thing I wanted to share was was uh, just an artist that, that I, I really respected and admire. Um, it's David Hockney. And he did a show um, at the Royal Academy in 2012 where he put on, what was it called? It, oh, yes, it was called A Bigger Picture. And uh, it, it was kind of a, a standard... A fairly classic um, set of paintings, drawings of the area around Bridlington, which is in um, East Yorkshire, northeast Yorkshire, on the coast. Um, and I, I guess, you know, in a way, this sounds really boring because, you know, just classic um, landscape art. But 
it was totally stunning, totally stunning. And the, the, the colors that he used, you know, the, 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 the clarity of color was, was, was incredible. And, and the way that, you know, it just made me see the world again in a different way. And, and when, when an artist does that, you, you know that, you know, they're good. Mm -hmm. And I just love the way he thinks about um, about uh, painting. You know, he, he says things like he he has to, to to be an artist. You have to um, use your brain, use your hand, and use your eye. And I think that's a really good summary of of the skills that he brings to it. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, if you can, I don't know whether it's been in the states that um, that exhibition, but if you get a chance to to see that work especially at full size it's it's, it's totally mind blowing that sounds really cool i i mean i've I, I i it occurs to me to wonder whether it's actually harder to use a i don't know if this is the right word but mundane subject you know like just yeah the view out the window <laughs> so, you know something that the impressionists have all done and you know it's it's kind of hackneyed isn't it the uh, the landscape but um you know Seeing a, a modern artist um, bring a new perspective on landscape pe painting after everything that's been done over the past few hundred years is—I um, I thought it was incredible. Very cool. Uh, so, do, do you um, do you do anything uh, in the way of producing art yourself? I have done. Yes, I haven't done a lot recently, except for you know graphics at work, web graphics and, and the like. Um, but I, I have done some acrylics. Um, I've done some sculpture. I've done some wood sculpture. Um, I used to be into making a sort of anatomically nice looking horses out of wood, um, which um, which was good fun. <laughs> cool. Well, awesome. Well, I think um, I, I, I this is the problem with putting this question at the beginning is that. I, for it one, would leads be... you in all sorts of different it, places, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself. The The only issue is that um, we all almost always have the guest on because they have done something that we found technically interesting. Yeah. And I, I'm always like, well, I'd love to keep talking about that, but I, but we, we do want to turn our attention to... Although, I guess in your case, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I will tease a bit by saying in your case, uh, the segue here is maybe maybe a bit less abrupt than it might be for other guests, um, but we'll come to that. Okay. Um, me meaning, well, I'll just hint a little bit. We are, we are going to talk about visualization, which I think is, uh, which is a super interesting um, uh, topic. But anyway, um, before we do that, though, I realized that I, I forgot to give you a proper introduction. Um, uh, I wonder if you would mind making up for my deficiency and introducing yourself to our audience briefly. Yeah, certainly. Um, okay, Mike Pearson. Um, I work at the uh, Cambridge Centre for Mathematical Sciences, which is part of the university. It's, it's really the maths faculty in the university. Um, I haven't, I mean, I'm, I've been working with groups mostly in the educational area, um, and those groups have been looking out to the general public rather than um, towards research. So it's been, um, I mean, the main group I've been working with is, is the, it's called the Millennium Mathematics Project because it was set up in the year 2000. Um, and we've published a number of websites aimed at uh, schools and a kind of um, scientific American stroke new scientist sort of site which was explaining mathematics to the general public, especially applied mathematics. Um, and 
and, and some of those sites have been really, really popular. The, the enrich.maths.org mathematics site um, is, is used by teachers all, all the way across, certainly in the UK a hell of a lot, and um, in, across the world as well. Uh, problem-solving mathematics science and, and they, they've required various visualizations over the years which I've been producing so that's where I'm coming from and more recently I've, I've moved over into the stats lab and I'm um, helping to work with a new project called the Winton it's, it's got a very long name I haven't learned it yet it's um, it's the Winton uh, Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, if that makes any sense to mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. It's all about balanced communication of evidence through whatever means we need, trying to avoid things like Brexit happening again, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, yes, and so this was to some degree the topic of, of your talk. I, I think I, I will attempt to summarize it and hopefully not do too badly. Um, I should mention, by the way, that I, I got a chance to see your talk. Um, as we record this, uh, this is at Euroclosure. It, it's not out yet, but it will be no. uh, very likely by the time this show goes um, goes public. Definitely. Oh, that's interesting. Have you, have you got any dates yet on that? Because obviously I'm interested at this end. Uh, you know, I don't know a particular date. Um, we, we can certainly um, – we, I'll, I'll, we'll, offline we'll ask, uh, we'll ask the people in charge and see if they can give you something more. But I think it, it's it's – you know, a, a matter of weeks, not not months. So, sure, it shouldn't be too long. And certainly, by the time this comes out, I expect that people will be able to to view your talk, which I thought was um was very interesting. I think um, you know, you addressed the topic of visual the visualizations that you considered rejected and ultimately uh, settled on as part yeah. of a, a very important project relating to. Well, maybe I'll throw it to you. I wonder if you could um you know, relate to our audience what the, the topic of your talk was and maybe some of the challenges and, and discoveries that you made in the course of uh, doing that project. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, the, the talk was mostly about a project that I was involved in. Um, we called it, I mean, all these academic projects have a, a silly acronym, and this was called PRAISE2 because it was about partial risk adjust, adjustment um, in infant surgery. That makes praise if you put it all together. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it's uh, it was about child heart surgery. Um, it's about correcting congenital heart disease. Um, and there have been, uh, over the years, a lot of statistics gathered um, about the performance of surgeries, about surgeons, about the performance of hospitals, um, which are summarized in whether children die or not, not 30 days after the after the surgery you know if they survive 30 days then that's a win if they die obviously that's not so good um and this was triggered by a, a whole long history of um heart surgery uh, which dates back to 1944 when it started in the in baltimore um and we had a, an unfortunate experience in the uk in 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 bristol in the late 1980s where um, the unit there was, was having much, much higher death rates than were to be expected. And um, there was a lot of controversy at the time. There hadn't been enough um, evidence gathered, I think, and, we, and people were just learning how to, how to assess that evidence. So a whole set of procedures were put into place to, to um, 
to make sure that in the future we could we could um, we, we could assess um, how hospitals were behaving and really audit their performance, and, and it acts as a sort of an early warning system to make sure that we were on top of um, of, of of any anything that might be going wrong in the hospital. You know, if, if, consultant who's going a bit gung-ho and trying new techniques without any due respect for the needs of parents, this sort of thing. Yeah, so this was a really interesting talk to me on on a number of dimensions. I mean, one, one was certainly, I really love it when I hear about people applying our craft, profession, whatever the word is, to, yes. to helping people. You know, I yeah. think... There's a lot of there's a lot of work, and it's it's you know it's not a bad thing, but you know a lot of times it's okay. Well, I'm I'm building maybe in my spare time I'm building you know I like to do flight simulators and I'm building tools for um, to make that more enjoyable, and that's great. But then I hear about someone using software to improve the chances of children surviving heart surgery. And I'm like, that's the stuff. So I thought that was that was that was great. I mean, so maybe I have a question which is kind of a stupid one since the answer is likely obvious, but is that something that um, that you valued about this project was the fact that you're, you know, contributing to hopefully saving children's lives? I mean, I have to imagine it is. Well, well I, I think that's taking it a bit far. We're, we're not necessarily immediately helping to save children's lives. It, this is, in, in, in a very boring sense, an audit of, of hospital performance. But, you know, if we learn from bad practice um, and good practice then then obviously it, it, it yeah I guess it may help to save a few lives um, but yeah I mean it, it, it was a real privilege to work on this project I I, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, and working with clever people who know what they're doing and um, you know everybody had his own speciality his or her speciality and um, I, and the whole project pulled together in a, in a way that uh, I, you rarely see. And and also working with the parents of the children, because we, we, we met them uh, in focus groups, where and often they brought their children with them, and they, they, they used those focus groups to tell us about the experience they had of going through the surgery with their children. And they were looking at the web tools that we were developing at the same time and, and feeding back and saying whether they thought this or that was important to say or you know, whether a certain word jarred with them or not or whether a graphic jarred with them. Um, and it, you know, it's just a huge privilege to, to, to meet these, these people because obviously it's a very stressful and traumatic time for them. Yeah, so you've touched on one of the other uh, really, really interesting, for me, takeaways from your talk, which was you know, this phenomenon that I think we run into a lot, which is the, it's not a disconnect really, but it's a difference in perspective between um, the people that are producing a tool and the yes. people that are consuming it. And that you yes, had a couple, huge difference. Yeah. Yes. And you had a couple great examples of places where as a programmer, I would have looked at your initial take on things and said, oh yeah, I, I see where they're coming from because my viewpoint is always, let me understand the model. Um, yeah. But you arrived at something different because you weren't communicating with programmers. You were trying to do something else. Maybe you can make that more concrete for people. Uh, well, maybe I should, I should go back to the, the central visualization of, of, of the web tool that we presented because um, 
I think that kind of sums up the process that we went through. Um, and and really, the, the, the problem that we have is that when you're trying to assess how a hospital is performing, you have to assess it against some standard. So you might have a hospital that um, in the past year has uh, a 97% survival rate, 30-day survival rate for children post-operatively. Well, how do you know whether that, how do you know whether that's good or bad? Ninety-seven percent sounds high, but you know, if all the other hospitals are up at ninety-nine percent, ninety-eight percent, and a few of them are down at ninety-six percent, well, maybe ninety-seven percent is is not so good. So, obviously, what you have to do is is get a, a predicted range um, within which you would expect the hospital to be performing, but that predicted range should be different. Um, for each hospital, because the hospitals take on different cases. Some of them specialise in quite um, complex surgeries. Some of them specialise in, in, in the less risky cases. So um, the predicted range is going to move with the hospital's specialisations and with the particular um, intake of children that they've had during the year. So that's where this risk adjustment comes in. And uh, you can imagine that the trying to explain how that predicted range is calculated and, and how it's totally dependent on, on the children that are visiting the hospital and are, are, um, have their operations and not at all to do with the hospital itself is, is, is where you have to gain the trust of people. And that's, that's the core concept you have to get over. That, and the way it works is that ch the children come into the hospital, they're assessed, um, you can imagine uh, that the, the consultants and the doctors going through a checklist of, of problems that they have to correct. Um, they, go, they have their x-rays, they have their ultrasound, the, the doctors do the diagnosis, they, they understand what the disease is, they get their 3D imaging, and, and they, in advance, if you like, fill in a form to say, this is the situation. Um, and, and that form is the input to our statistical model. Beginning to lose the thread here. No, that's okay. We were talking. No, no worries. Uh, no, I'm right, I'm right with you, though. I mean, we were talking so, about. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so um, if you can, if you can imagine there's a hospital that's that's got that's doing five or six hundred children during the year doing operations on those, then you've got five or six hundred risk assessments, and 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 each of those can go into our statistical model, and it and that will come a risk factor for, for that child. So you might say this child has a 70% chance of surviving the surgery. This child has a 99.9% .9 chance of surviving the surgery. And that's purely from the statistical model. And you would never communicate those numbers to, to a parent because they only make sense in aggregate when you're looking at the whole hospital. Um, but that, that's kind of the process that we go through. We have all these children coming in. They um, are assessed individually and then you can run a kind of a, well it's a mathematical model to, to assess what the predicted range of outcomes in aggregate for that hospital should be for that year. And that's what we were trying to explain. <laughs> so it's, it's not an easy thing to explain to the general public or to journalists. Um, and it's quite key that we do this because if you get it wrong, if you get the communications wrong, 
then really all hell breaks loose, as it has done in the past. Uh, we've, we've had uh, closures of uh, the Leeds General Infirmary for a few weeks because something went slightly wrong and some journalists got the wrong end of the stick and started making um, rather um, incorrect, um, publishing incorrect art articles or, or rather contentious articles about our hospital that was just slightly out of out of the norm, but it could have happened by chance. So that's the sort of thing we're trying to avoid. Right. And so I, I saw you showed a, a couple things that kind of speak to that. One maybe minor example was you have a case in your UI where you had the ability to display um, some statistic that had to do with a percentage chance of something occurring. Um, yeah. It's a range and then where you know, where a particular data point was on that range. And the yes. range was generally quite narrow, you know, 96 to 100% was what you were yes, showing. Yes, well, well, these hospitals are, really, are doing very well these days. I mean, it's, there's overall survival rates are very high. So the, the ranges are between something like 96% and 99, 99% survival. Right, and so you showed, you had the ability to show that narrow range so that you could actually, you know, see enough detail to make to draw whatever conclusions need to be drawn. But then you said it was really important that you be able to also show the full range from zero to a hundred. So you yeah. can get sort of an absolute view. And I thought that that's the type of thing that I find absolutely fascinating because um, I've been doing a little bit of minor work in visualization lately. Yes. And it, it feels to me like when you find that sort of thing, and maybe this is just me, you immediately know it to be correct or, or you know, it feels like really valuable. You hit it and you're like, oh yeah, well obviously that's useful. But from the other side of it, like when I'm starting out to try to present information, um, it, it takes me what feels like a really long time to get past my own, uh, you know, uh, blindness or, or, you know, inability to perceive that and, and to arrive there. And so it always feels like a lot of work and a big payoff and I'm wondering whether, A, that's the same for you, and B, whether in your experience that, that it, it becomes easier or there are techniques that lower the um, activation energy, if you will, to arrive at that state of, of like really appropriate and useful visualizations. Well, that particular example of the 0 to 100% range or the 94% to 100% range, you know, making the choice or making, making a slider that takes you between those two extremes, um, it, it's really just an example of, of looking at absolute risk or looking at, um, in a way, well, unbased. Uh, uh, no, it's not relative risk, is it? It's... it's um, we're looking at a sub-range or a whole range, and it's very, very easy to misinform people just by expanding a graph, uh, by expanding the range of a graph. So one thing that the statisticians in particular are very hot on is, is um, making sure that people do get the whole picture. And, and obviously here we're, we're comparing hospitals, or we could be comparing hospitals, and uh, you know, there isn't a big difference between 96% and 96.5%. But if you've got, if you're on a on an expanded uh, range going from 94% to 100% in your graphic, then that looks enormous. So it's really quite important to to show people where you are on the scale 
and um, and to give them a feel for for the fact that we are dealing here with very small differences um, in survival. And 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 another problem that the statisticians will point out is is that uh, is the framing of, of of these numbers that we're talking here about survival. We could also be equivalently talking about mortality. And so we could be talking about, um, I've been saying 96% to 99%. Well, that's a difference of 4% and 1% in mortality terms. And then you could have a journalist picking up on, on that and saying, well, this hospital has got four times the mortality rate of this other hospital because it's at 96% instead of 99% survival. So you, the framing there is, is also really important. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm, you mentioned a couple times that uh, some of these insights came from the, the statisticians. Was that, was that always the case? Yes. I mean, that, that, no, that was not always the case. In fact, that was... Um, uh, well, I mean, the statisticians um, and the psychologists uh, pre- prepared the bulk of the text of the web tool. There was a lot of explaining to do and a lot of it had to be done in text. But the the parents, the journalists, the health professionals that came in to the focus groups were really what this project was all about. Um, we we drove it from those focus groups. We, we had uh, something like eight photo, focus groups in total. And, uh, and we just went through a cycle of uh, preparing initially something on paper for them and, and getting some feedback, getting uh, some reaction to initially the texts and a few diagrams on, on paper, and then taking it in each cycle through success, successive iterations until, um, until we had people saying, yeah, this is, this is what we want to do, this, this makes sense, um, this helps us through it. So that was the process we went through, and it was really important to take it from the users there. And I th- also think it was really important for the technical, technical people, and I mean me, I was, I was the technical person, to be involved with the users at that stage. Because um, I, I do think that we have something to offer there, that, that very often we can provide solutions that... Um, that that others do not see because they don't know what's possible. Um, so so there were many occasions when uh, when a problem would come up and and you could you could offer some alternatives and, and then the, the users the present parents or whoever would uh, would make an immediate decision as to which ones they would prefer. Hmm. So. Um I guess I, that that's all really, really and, and you know I think there's there's a there's a sense in which that you know that idea of tight feedback loops of direct yeah. connection between between users and developers I mean these aren't new ideas they're, right no they're not then not new ideas in the industry in the web development industry and but they are new ideas in um, in in the health community in many ways. Um, it's quite surprising. When I mean, we've published um, a paper, Christina Pagel, um, who was the project director, and, and uh, well, I suppose all of us contributed to it. 
we're publishing papers on this, and, and the feedback that we've had from the academic com community is, is basically saying, yeah, this is fantastic, but, you know, this is a model that we should be following in, in, um, in future health projects, um, future statistical health projects. So, you know, maybe it, it's, it's the case that the industry and the web industry is, is a little bit ahead of, um, of, of academic practice here. Uh, maybe. Um, certainly, I think it, it's something that we arguably stole from manufacturing, <laughs> right, yeah. with all the lean and everything. But what I was wondering, too, was um, based on this experience, because I think there are some differences from maybe typical web development, whatever that means, yeah. in the experience you had, whether there's anything that you saw that you would definitely carry forward to future projects I, I i don't know what that would be it maybe it's this this idea of the the focus groups or whatever but was there anything where you're like oh well even if i'm not working in healthcare at some point in the future i would still do x were there any lessons like that for you uh well i, I suppose since we're on a, a cognitive cast <laughs> i'm going to talk about closure at some point yeah I'm, please i'm, I'm, de I'm de definitely going to be taking that through um one of the things that I found was that um, I mean these cycles that we went through, um, focus group to producing a new prototype to develop publishing and then another focus group. And so you're going around a, a loop and and there's a lot that has, has to happen in that loop. Um, the, the, each focus group generates a huge amount of material and, and that has to be processed, written up and we have to then make decisions on what what are the key things that we must implement? Um, so the facilitators would write this all, all that. Um, Centre Bank Science helped us there. That's a, a sort of charity com company in, in London who helped. And, and that would take them some time. There's a lot to do, lots of process. Um, and then the statisticians and myself and the psychologists would, would discuss um, react and 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 so there was a process that we went through on each iteration before I could even get started in implementing the next round and typically I'd have you know maybe a week to get the next iteration out before the next round of focus groups um, so I should say at this point I'm getting on a bit I, I'm you know, I'm 64 years old <laughs> so um, I like things to be easy and and the, the way I think closure scripts and helped in this case was was simply the fact that I could think it all through in one language. I didn't have to go into you know, HTML, JavaScript, even CSS. Um, I didn't have to, um, and I certainly was aware of all that happening in the background. But but the language I was thinking in was was the same, the data structures I was thinking in were, were, was, was constant all the way through. It just made, made it easier to fit into my head and, and to react quickly to, to what was needed. So, I mean, that's an experience that I was very pleased with. And um, I, I, I don't think I was doing anything um, out of the ordinary there. I was just, you know, just being an engineer doing, doing a job. But, with these tools, I felt I was being more productive than I would have been uh, in an old-style JavaScript or Angular world, which is the, the world I've just come from. 
Um, so I was very happy with that, and I certainly be taking those practices forward. Cool. Um, you mentioned CSS, by the way, uh, yeah. and, and I think I think uh, uh, you implied, or at least I certainly inferred, that you're doing something other than writing CSS in a in a static file using you know the CSS syntax. Is, is that something I've been kind of interested well, in? Is that what you were doing, or am I wrong? Yeah, I've been very interested. I, I suppose I've, I've talked about Angular, and um, I suppose that morphed into web components and polymer and all those sorts of things. And um, one of the things that they had, which I thought was very useful, was this idea of uh, being able to localize your CSS definitions to within a, um, a user interface component. Because there are some things that you, where you want to make the decision as to how, um, how things look at component level, and you don't want that to be influenced by global CSS in the file. So you have to find ways of localizing that CSS. Um, and CSS is a horrible sort of, goes everywhere kind of language I, I find. It's, 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 it's really hard to control it. Um, so, I mean, since doing this project, I've, I've been looking around at, at ways of, of getting that kind of uh, approach in, into the uh, ClojureScript React realm framework and uh, I, I came across um, a little library by um, Mathieu Bette, um who has done a ClojureScript implementation of CSS modules, which um, I haven't really used that in Angular yet, but I, I think it looks very promising. I, I've, I've tried a few demonstrations with it, tried a few um, little ports of R components in, with it, and, and, and um, and I'm not sure whether that's the the the, the, the all singing all dancing example of, of what's needed there, but but it, it's certainly moving in the right direction, and uh, and I think it does help you. I mean, you end up coding CSS in garden syntax, uh, which is like Hiccup, um, and, I, and I think that's that's a good way to go. I mean, you can then extract the CSS files from it, and um, if you want to. Uh, Publishing in a classic mechanism, in a classic way, where you, your CSS is separate from your code. So. Yeah, that so right. So uh, and I, so the thing that kind of tipped me off that this might be a good idea was I was talking with um, Alan Dipert and uh, Misha Niskin on a, a recent show, and they mentioned Hoplon UI. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Right, and so they they talked about the fact that CSS doesn't. Re it's not really a language, right? You don't have any mechanism of composition or abstraction or, or reuse, yeah. and hence things like SAS and less. Um, yes. And I was like, well, yeah, I want those things. And and so I haven't looked at the 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 thing you mentioned. I forget the name of it, but the the CSS modules thing. I've looked at Garden a bit. Yeah, it's, it's quite big in JavaScript. There's this uh, library called CSS modules and uh, web cool and distributions of it, um, which looks very good. So, so w did you wind up on the on the project that you did? You said you're looking into these approaches on the project yeah, that you I did. did. It, I, I've looked at, at those since I finished this project. So, gotcha. um, but but uh, for future work and, and the current work I'm doing, yes, I think I'm, I'm definitely going down that road. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely have to check that out myself. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the tip there. Um, and it's just yet another way of, of pulling, you know, everything that we do in web development into, into the one language. And I really do think that, that helps you think about it. 
it's certainly a great help for someone like me who has spent the bulk of their career um, avoiding the front end and and focusing on the back end, and so having to move over into this world, um, it's definitely helpful. That aspect yes. is helpful for me now that I'm doing more work um, uh, with with things that people actually have to look at and interact with, and and hopefully not hate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People do hate this stuff if you get it wrong. <laughs> well, I certainly do. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned something actually. I think that this touches on a bit. You used the word trust, and I was like, yes. "Whoa, that's a really interesting concept for for user interface." Like, how do you? Um, and and I don't, there's probably not a simple answer to this, but what are your thoughts on the role of and the mechanisms by which we can achieve trust via user interface? I mean, you're, you're it's kind of an odd oh, concept, gosh. right? That's yeah, and I think that's that's quite hard. Um, yeah, um, and I'm not sure whether the user interface can do a whole lot. Uh, it, it's more about where you're coming from, and it's the whole picture. Um, so, so I think if you're reading a, a site which is is trying to um, give you information about something on which you may be making a decision, that the first thing you want to know is that you're getting unbiased opinions, well, and, and, and really not opinions either, that, that, that the site is giving you the information in a, in a way, and that information comes from good, reliable sources. So um, in data visualization, you, you, you've got to be quite careful that, that your sources are quoted, um, and, um, and, and you aren't Try, you're not funded by you know, one side of the argument, for example. That would be a classic um, way to lose trust. Um, we have to have a, a balanced approach and, and be seen to be balanced as well. Um, how that comes out in the visualization, I'm, I'm not sure. But the, the, I mean, there are certain things that you should do. Um, the, the framing thing that I just talked about, whether you talk, talk about mortality or talk about survival, um, we we started out talking about both um, because we want, you know, we knew that framing um, matters, matters to people. You can say the same thing and quote death statistics instead of survival statistics, and it sounds completely different. It, it gives people a completely different feeling for the numbers. Um, but you know, they're both equally valid. So we wanted to talk about both initially. And, and that's where things like the focus groups are really important, because as you go through it, you realize that you can't talk about both. You, you can't talk about both in the same way, simply because it confuses people. Um, you know, if you're quoting one number, and it might be a survival number, or it might be a, a death number, there's, there's too much for them to hold in, in their head. And, and they need it, you know, they need it straight. So that's the case where... Um, where the, the balance of mortality against survival went in the favor of survival, although we do still put mortality figures in the table. And, I mean, does that help answer the question? It's those sorts of judgments that you have to make. Well, I mean, unsurprisingly to me, um, what you, what, if I can 
grossly paraphrase you. It's that software is about people, <laughs> yes. which, which is a theme that, you know, we, we've hit on this show uh, over and over again. Um, and of course, people are complicated and irrational and, uh, you know, don't have a very good capacity for um, objectivity, especially around uh, numbers, especially in the margins. You know, you get up into these 96, 98% numbers. They, yes. just, they don't make sense to people. But but and, the, and, and some, sometimes it makes more sense not to use the numbers. Sometimes the, the words can be more important, um, especially if, if because there, there's, there's very often uncertainty in these numbers. And you can make a figure sound um, accurate just by giving it a, a number. You, know, you might say 96% survival rate. Fine. But what's the error in that? Well, if the error is between, you know, you know, four percent either way, then maybe you should just be saying, "Well, it's in the 90s, or it's it's a very high survival rate," um, and and try and keep the numbers out of it. But if you just don't have the the evidence to back up a hard figure, so figures can can confuse people as well and, and give the wrong impression. They can give a false sense of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I really see that connected to the idea of using the focus groups that you did because I imagine, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that you were trying to assess with those was the way that people uh, emotionally reacted to the information you were presenting. Yes, yes. Um, I, I suppose the, the 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 one thing that we needed to do in explaining this predicted range was to use the idea of uh, an icon array um, where each icon was representing a, a child. Um, and we wanted the icon to encode things like the risk of that child dying, so we used colour for that, um, and and also the age of the child, because um, you know the older children have a, a lower risk of dying than the very young uh, babies. Um, so we needed images for those children, and also we needed to progress the animation through to um, what happened when the child, you know, unfortunately occasionally died um, so we needed an icon for death for a dead child and that's the sort of thing that obviously is, is really hard um, and, and it, it, it invokes an immediate emotional response um, yeah so so we had some uh, graphics back from our animators initially which uh, showed um, they were very nice hand-drawn little um, cartoons of, 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 of children and when and in turning one these into icons for dead children my first thought was oh, you know, death black <laughs> and, and let's, let's make the child uh, white on, on top of the black instead of having the coloured um, you know, image that we started out with and, and, and what I hadn't realised was that we were ending up with uh, a rather ghostly picture of uh, you know, a child ghost on a black background, and 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 of course this is not what you need. Um, it, it's um, and I, I think we went through a, a focus group with the professionals with with this icon in the animatic first, and and the professionals, the doctors, the journalists, looked at this and said, oh, "You can't show that to parents." Mm. You know, it's it's you know that's totally inappropriate, um, which was fine. But then the following week, we did show it to parents, and 
interestingly, the reaction there was was far more muted. It was more, um, yeah, that's okay, you know, because they, they have the reality, um, and the color of an icon is not so important to, to them as, as what's actually happening to the little child. So, the, the without going through those focus groups, you 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 would um, not appreciate that, and and and, and it was clear that. Um, it's very dangerous to to try and anticipate the reactions of a completely different group, as the professionals did of the parents. Uh, you, you will very likely just get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I love my favorite projects are always the ones where I'm most connected to the um, the person that owns the problem. That's not always the user. Um, it's not always yes. possible, right? Like if you're doing a, yeah, a large sure. website. But yeah, I, I love being connected to to someone who can who can say this is what it should be or this is what it shouldn't be that always those projects always feel a lot better than when there's several layers of indirection or yeah. group ownership of a problem which is not inherently bad but you know that when it's done in such a way that decision making or or opinions are diffuse uh, that, that that always uh that's, that's interesting I, I, that's that must have been a really fascinating experience for you I, had you done uh, I know you've done web development before. Had you done? Yeah, a- no. Um, to be honest, no. I, I, I've I've been fairly sheltered from the industry and working with, in in this um, in the university with, with these outward facing projects. Yes, towards school teachers mostly. Um, but I, I think our practice here has not been um, as as clearly user driven as as it should have been. And um, and I, I suppose I'm com- I have I have the enthusiasm of of uh, of the neophyte here. I, I I've suddenly got myself tuned into this and realizing, wow, this is really important. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, what was the uh, if you can talk about it? What was the impetus for this? Like, what was the thing that like who or what force introduced this mechanism into an environment where maybe it wasn't happening oh. before? It was, um, I mean, at the start of the project, um, obviously, it, you, Christina had to put in a, a funding proposal to get money for it and went through into the um, National Institute of Health Research. And she proposed to tack on to the end of um, a project, which was essentially to revise the statistical model in light of the new data that had come in over the past few years. Um, she proposed to add on a communications element to make sure that um, the results were communicated clearly, accurately, in an unbalanced way. Sorry, in a, in a balanced way to uh, to everybody. And um, in order to do that, she tacked on a focus group at the end. And the funders came back to her and said, "This is a really good idea. You know, I don't think we've done this before, but let's let's do it." But let's not just have the focus group at the end. Let's have them right away through the project and from the start of the project. And can you drive the project from the focus groups? So actually, um, it was our funders that that requested this, um, surprisingly, and uh, and they they have responded very uh, positively to the whole process. Very cool. Oh, this is all really interesting. I just have been, I mean, it's an inherently interesting, but I've also been so interested in, in uh, the topics around visualization and, of course, always in the intersection of 
the, the people aspects of software, which in my opinion are dominant and, and the technical ones, which yes. I'm also um, deeply interested in. So cool yes. stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, I always like to make sure that we leave time um, in the conversation uh, to talk about other things that the, the, the guests would sure. like to bring up, if anything. I don't know if you have anything in mind. Sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. But, uh, but you know, as we kind of approach an hour-ish, which is our, our, our general time frame, happy to go longer if we're in the middle of something good. I always like to say, well, so that's awesome. Th- that was kind of the thing I had in mind that we would talk about today. Are there other things that you would like to, to bring up or discuss? Um, well, let me see. I, I suppose we, I mean, we could talk a little bit about um, my journey towards closure and closure. Oh, yeah, scripts, please. I love origin stories. <laughs> yeah, please. I'd love to hear that. A little bit about that. So the, the work I was doing um, in education was mostly flash-based which is possibly a a bit of a no-no term these days. But I think at the time, um, this would be from about 2003 to to the Steve Jobs denouement in 2010, um, it was the best technology for for a small group of one or two people to support a lot of small interactives. because you could get material out into the browsers and because it was going into a, essentially the, the flash player, the, a virtual machine, you had a consistent environment that you could aim for. And you could, um, and, and you have a good graphics um, environment um, and with new things like Flex and Flash Builder coming along, you had a, a, a good um IDE and development system, there, there was a lot going for it. So when we need, suddenly realized that um, this was no longer going to be appropriate in the future um, and started making the move into HTML5 and JavaScript, um, it, it really felt for a long time, you know, what do I go to? What do I turn to? Um, where are the standards here? Where, where are the tools that I can use? And I suppose until I've hit on closure, I've, I've been through most of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, at, at your closure, David Nolan put up, you'll probably see it if you haven't seen it already. Um, he put up a slide of um, how he feels about JavaScript development, um, which was uh, a picture of one of these enormous um, organs with all the buttons, you know, it must have been two or three hundred multicolored buttons there. And, and it was a really good um, impression of, 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 I think, what a, what, what a JavaScript en- engineer feels JavaScript is like. It's, it's, there's just so much to choose from, so many different ways to go, and it feels like you're walking on quicksand the whole time. Um, so, you know, I, I went through GWT, I went through Clojure, I went through various research projects like Mobile and Dojo and Censure and Dart and Angular and Cappuccino and Sprout, all those things you have to explore and it takes an enormous amount of time. Um, And it's really unproductive time. Um, So when I finally started tuning into functional programming, not closure 
in the first instance, in the first instance, I went through uh, coffee scripts and then live scripts and then and then um, Haskell and then Elm and finally got into into closure and closure scripts and suddenly I'm, I feel ah this this works you know this this is a bit a good this is a big enough solution to cover the the whole field. Because up until then, I kept on falling off the edge. You know, the, the things I needed to do that that the framework didn't cover. Um, but here, I, f I feel, you know, you, you've got it covered in a way, which which. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling I'm back in that old kind of way of working that I used to be in Flash. I've, I've got a I've got a, a firm base that I can can trust. So that's what it feels like now. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, so I agree. I I I feel the same way, right? I mean, I think the idea of simplicity, right? This this idea of small pieces you can put together in different ways is where that comes yes. from. You know what I mean? You can yeah, because sure. you're always going to be able to. Well, always is a strong word, but you're more often going to be able to. You, go. you have enough enough in your head, which it is describes the problem simply right. enough, so that you can. You can cope with the rest of it, right. um, but when you when you're coping with stuff that um, when you're never sure that you're starting on the correct basis, you, you I think it holds you up. You can't take it forwards in the same way. Right, right, yeah. So and so the other thing that you said that kind of um, tweaked something in my head was you mentioned Flash, yes. and uh, you know how you how Flash was valuable to you and the problems that you were solving, um, yes. in part because you were able to leverage the the browser as the delivery mechanism, or, or at least the yes. web as the delivery mechanism and the browser as the as the I don't know, host. And and I, I, I've i lately been playing a little bit with um, with Node, and I know that... Um, oh, yes. Yes, I've, I've done for about... Yeah. Well, it'll be yeah. interesting to get your perspective on that, because I feel like, you know, there's, there's some opinion... Um, out there that node is you know that th th there's an equivalence drawn between node and javascript and because javascript is viewed by some well, people I think, node, I think node has done an, an awful lot to make javascript um, usable because until node npm um those those, those um, package managers uh, came along javascript was just impossible you know, you just have no way of connecting in individual bits of work together in this consistent way. And even with Node, you know, it's just one of, you know, two or three different mechanisms that you can use to define modules. Um, but, uh, you know, at least it's there and it's something that you can hand, hand a hat on to, to a certain extent. So, yeah, I've got no objection to using um, JavaScript libraries when they when they're there and they're good and they hit the spot. I mean, in graphics visualization, um, it's really hard to beat d3.js as a low-level graphics library um, and charting library. And, and many people in the JavaScript world have built some fantastic stuff on top of it. So, you know, I, but I, but that's, that's, all, that's all good in the ClojureScript world because if you need to use those things, you can. Um, so I don't feel cut off from that world at all. Right, and, and in fact, um, the thing about uh, Flash that reminded me of Node was was that 
I feel like closure lets me decouple the language from the runtime, you know? Yeah. So like I can still, I've, I've written some fairly involved simulation, uh, things like weather and, and, you know, it's computation heavy and yeah. I can <clears throat> use that from a, from the JVM. I can, um, uh, run it at a command line if I need to do that via, via node, like this idea that, you know, the runtime is, um, is a, is a feature <laughs> that's separate yes. from from the language. I think is a, is a really yes. powerful one. We're seeing yes, that I, all over the place. I, I, I happened upon your name recently. Um, you've done something running uh, closure scripts, making closure script executables in there, haven't you? Or yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything I invented, but I did happen to see that other people had. I was interested in in turning my closure code into a native executable because. The users for this particular thing are on Windows, and so that's a familiar packaging mechanism for them. I'm like, well, I have this code. It seems like one ought to be able to do that. I could certainly package it with um, the various JVM packagers, but if I can not have them install, um, you know, a, a Java, that's that's better yes. than making them do yes. it. And yes. so there There's is certainly a, a, a certain resistance to Java in, in certain quarters to. Yeah, not a big deal, but again, any any requirement that you can remove is only making things easier. And so I'm like, well, what would it take to produce a native executable? And it turns out there's this thing in the Node world called uh, Nexi, which is rather clever. It um, yeah. compiles the V8 engine um, and your source code into a single standalone thing that you can then say, well, here's a Nexi. And the startup characteristics are actually uh, quite good, uh, I think, uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it's significantly faster to start a closure program written in, you know, closure script compiled to JavaScript and embedded in one of these um, executables than it is to say run the equivalent program um, where you're firing yeah. up uh, Java, and certainly far faster than when you're launching it through Line again. Yeah, for things like D3, I, I, what I found myself doing quite a lot is is looking at D3 and thinking. Well, that's good. It's it's it does almost what I want, but I really don't want this binding between um, between. I don't want to keep data in the DOM. I want to keep it in my um, in my closure atom. Um, and and finding that there are parts of D three I want to rewrite because of that, or, or or I want to code myself using RUM or whatever. And when you do that, you find that actually. Most of this code that you're looking at in D3 is collapsing into just one little run component, and you think, that's an easy way of doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's been an interesting process. Cool. Um, well, I, I see that we are coming up on an hour, and, and a very, very interesting hour it has been indeed. Um, but uh, I think might be an excellent time. The conversation seems to have at least reached a great uh, pause point. I certainly am looking forward to my, my next conversation with you, whether it's Ooh. on the show or off. We would certainly love to have you back on again sometime. Uh, okay. But, I mean, I don't want to... Next, you... ne next time it's breast cancer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is... I really, I really do love to hear stories of people applying uh, technology to truly important problems um uh it's just it just makes me happy <laughs> that we are able to make the world a better place in addition to producing you know um games and 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 search engines and things like that that are yeah. you know i mean th 
those are great useful. things too, right? They're they're definitely useful. But I'd love it that you know that a child with a heart problem may in the future have a greater chance of survival due to something that we did with computers. That just makes me happy. So um, cool stuff. Certainly appreciate your contribution on that front. You're welcome. Um, so well, cool. It, it sounds like. Uh, that's a, a reason. I, I didn't cut you off. Like, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we? No, have? no, that, that, that's fine, man. Okay, great. Well, awesome. Well, I do have one more question uh, for you, then, yeah. as we always do. Uh, this is the question about advice. We always ask our guest to provide mm-hmm. our audience and, and me, for that matter, with a, with a piece of advice, uh, whether that's advice that they have received or advice they like to give, or really any sort of advice. So, what advice do you have for us? Okay. Um, well, a very quick one, um, and I think it's something that you all agree with. Um, when you develop, when you're developing, iterate. Never stay very far away from from running code. So, uh, I mean, it's, it, that's that's just a useful piece of advice that I've often give to anybody who comes in. We, we often have summer students here, and um, if um, and somebody who starts programming in, in the user interface will very often um, write too much code uh, before they try it, and and they'll make too many changes before the last iteration, so they get lost. And um, and so all I'd say is say to them is is you know make small changes, keep testing, go around the loop, and make sure that you're always on top of it. What I do? Oh, that's excellent advice, uh, and and not at all the worse for being something that we've said before, because I think it's the sort of thing that I at least could use um, frequent reminders on, since I, I know I tend to drift that. So thanks very much for that. I think it's fantastic. Um, and thanks a ton for taking the time to uh, to come on and talk to us today. It was really... Welcome, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. And um, uh, it's a bit scary. It's, not, I, it's the first podcast I've done. So uh, <laughs> my apologies if I was... Uh, a little bit hesitant about the whole thing, but uh, yeah, it's okay. Oh, not at all. No, we were really glad to have you. I, I found the conversation to be absolutely fascinating. I'm sure our listeners will agree. Uh, but we will go ahead and wrap it up there. The, the, this has been an awesome conversation. I'll thank you again, I'll, and I'll thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is a production of Cognitect, Inc. Cognitect are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Mike Pearson on Twitter at at Grumplet. That's at sign G-R-U-M-P-L-E-T. Our host today was the magnificent Craig Andera. Cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.